three, two, one, and we're back. Harry Ekman. Matthew Payne. We are back. This is season two of the Animal Chat podcast. It is season two of the Animal Chat podcast. Where have you been for the last, how long has it been? A few weeks, isn't it? Yeah, it's been a few weeks. Where have you been? What have you been doing? Oh my God, honestly, I am so bored of Zoom, Harry. I am Zoomed out. All Zoomed out. I can't deal with it anymore. I think I'm going to go crazy. I, But honestly, it's, it's a thing though, you know? Apparently, I've been reading research, people are getting Zoomed out. I have read the same thing. People are getting sick of Zoom. And actually, Zooming is super stressful. Yeah. Like the idea of being able to see someone on a Zoom screen is nice when you're kind of catching up with friends and family. But I don't know what the percentage is, but the statistic is how much time do you actually spend looking at other people? And how much time when you're on Zoom do you spend looking at yourself just to make sure that your posture is correct, that the background's okay, that your hair looks good, that you're not looking like a dick? I think for me, that's at least 98% of the time. And water management. Water management. Leaving the loo in the middle of a zoo. That's quite rude. Getting up and walking out in a zoo is rude. I just have a bucket by the chair. The stress of actually someone finding out that you're butt naked below the waist. I think I'm just getting a bit zoomed out, Harry. Uh, but I have been growing a beard. You've been growing a bit. How's that going? Well, my are you lovely... going down the hipster route? Are you going down the rugged cowboy route? Or are you going down the bedraggled rabbi route? <laughs> I've got a colleague, lovely Jane, shout out to Jane, who says I'm starting to look a bit like Ragnar Lothbrok from the show Vikings, right? I look more like the leader of Chechnya. <laughs> I look like a <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm going to keep going with it. I want to look a little bit... I don't know. I, I don't know what I'm going for. Hmm. How's your beard? You, you're a beard connoisseur. I'm not a beard connoisseur, but I've, you know, I'm quite happy with the state of my beard. What I did do over the last few months, as many people did, I think, I decided to try and grow my hair because oh, yeah. I had these illusions that I was going to have some luxuriant Brad Pitt, yeah. Michael Douglas, coiffured hair. I ended up looking like Christopher Walken. <laughs> It wasn't a good look. I had illusions that it was going to be something, you know, sort of like very cool and spectacular. It didn't work. I can't carry off long hair. But Harry, yes. when we ended the first season, I sent you a mm-hmm. map, didn't I, of which countries has our podcast been downloaded in? It was many. And what did we say we wanted, our aim was for this podcast this season? What did we want to achieve? We wanted to break somewhere. We wanted to break America. No, we've already broken America, mate. We're listening to in nearly every state in America. We are? Yeah. Where, where did we want to break? There's a big area of the map where we're not getting listened to. Ah, we wanted to break Latin America. No, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> For fuck's sake. We, we wanted to break Africa. There we go. We wanted to break Africa. Well, Harry, guess what? Did we break Africa? Harry, we have been downloaded in Africa. We have broken South Africa. We broke South Africa. We are getting listened to South Africa. If you know anyone in Africa, please, I want to get in Central, East, Northern. <laughs> if you know anyone in Africa. Yeah, if you know any, I don't know any. Do you know anyone in Africa? I, I know some people. You know, it's quite a big place and there's what? quite a lot of people there. So, Africa, thank you for jumping on board the Animal Chat podcast train. Yes, we will continue to reach every single corner of the world. Now, Harry Ekman, 
now we are back in the wonderful world of podcasting. We are starting our new season with a bang. Who have we got in store? My God, are we? This is a real coup. When we started this podcast, the idea of getting somebody of this caliber to speak to us was unthinkable. Now we just take it in our stride. It's kind of like, well, why wouldn't we? You know, but it was a real privilege to speak to none other than Captain Paul Watson of Sea Shepherd. I know. He, for those who don't know, Paul Watson was one of the co-founders of Greenpeace. He later founded the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. He's basically been sailing around the world, fighting injustice when it comes to things like whaling the shark fin trade. He's just basically an icon. That's the only way. He is. And he's the only difference between him and a superhero is I haven't seen a picture of him wear a cape. Right. But he goes around and he is fearless. And we talk about this in the podcast. He's fearless in the way that he confronts injustice and cruelty and corruption and everything that Sea Shepherd does. And we were so lucky to chat with him. And he was so engaging and friendly and shared some really terrific stories, which you are going to hear momentarily. But what a great opportunity and what a real thrill it was to speak to him. And our first guest that was on the Interpol red list. Yeah. Do I count? (laughs) They still haven't caught you, Harry. Run! So I know you're going to enjoy this episode and yeah, let's do this. This is the first episode of season two of the Animal Chat podcast with the iconic Paul Watson. that for me stands out about you and something that I really admire is your fearlessness and your almost strength of character resilience even in moments of what can seem very dangerous situations when you're out at sea even you know with the court systems you've had you know the legal battles you've had to go through you've had a for me a really admirable fearlessness to you and and I was really interested whether that was something you've naturally had or is if it's something that was shaped maybe by your upbringing or something you've learned throughout your career well, uh, it has its positive and negative sides. You know, the negative side, you, you do a lot of foolish things. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think that, you know, really it goes back, and I, I think I explained this in the uh, film, it goes back to when I was a child and I got uh, in a situation where I was pretty sure I was going to die and really came to the acceptance of that. And uh, having survived it, I just really never had any fear of anything after that. And what I understood, what I realized is that uh, once you lose your fear of death, you pretty much lose your fear of everything. Uh, and so it, it's liberating in one sense. But again, you know, you tend to do a lot of silly things. <laughs> <laughs> How did that happen, Paul? Because I, I, I say I've not watched the documentary. I can't wait to hear it tonight. But was that something that happened to you when you were young or in your teenage years? Well, when I was eight, eight years old, we were playing. I, I was raised in a fishing village in eastern Canada on the Passamaquoddy Bay, which has the highest tides in the world. It's 110-foot spring tides. And um, we were playing pirates or something, and I got tied to the mast of a boat that uh, was sunk. (laughs) And uh, then they forgot me. So the other kids forgot me. So the tide was coming in, 
And, uh, you know, it was rising up my ankles, my knees, and, you know, my waist and up to my chest. And that's when I realized that, you know, there's nothing I could do about it. But I was yelling, of course, trying to get some help. But, you know, it was out on the way out on the beach. But fortunately, some teenage boys heard me and came in and rescued me. But up and uh, up to that point, I pretty much accepted that I was going to actually drown. And, um, you know, it, it just became like an acceptance, really. Not the only time you've probably been in danger while playing pirates, Paul, I can imagine. That's something that happened to you a few more times in your career as well. But uh, the following times, I never really had to go through the acceptance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've been an activist and somebody who's passionate about nature and animals and, uh, and the environment your entire life. And that was something that started at a very early age, but then your activism grew and grew and grew. And I just wondered if you could talk about that just a little bit, where that started from and how, in retrospect, now you saw your evolution into the formidable activist that you actually became. When I was 10 years old, I spent the summer swimming with a family of uh, beavers and had a great time. Uh, you know, got to know the beavers really well. And uh, the next summer, I couldn't wait to get back. And I returned to the pond and they were all gone. And found out that trappers had taken them out during the winter. Now, that made me very angry. So that winter, I began to walk the trap lines and free animals from the traps, and I also destroyed the traps. <laughs> through the <laughs> I was also a member of a group called the Kindness Club, which was set up by the wife of the premier of New Brunswick at the time, Ida Fleming. Kindness Club, was uh, the honorary president was Albert Schweitzer, so you get the idea of where it was going. A few years later, uh, Ida Fleming uh, described me as the hitman for the Kindness Club. <laughs> But so really, I never really had to make a career choice as to what I was doing from 11 years old until I'll be 70 this year. I'm still doing the same thing. When you were releasing the beavers from the traps and destroying the traps, did you ever get confronted by any of the trappers or did you manage to evade detection? I actually was never caught. Uh, There's a lot of rumors. <laughs> <laughs> I did get in trouble for disrupting uh, duck hunts and deer hunting. One thing, I, I shot a boy in the ass with a BB gun. It was about completely <laughs> I got in a little bit of trouble for that. Uh, it was interesting. A few years later, Dixie Lee Ray, who was a former governor, she's dead now, but the former governor of Washington State, she wrote a book called Trashing the Planet, which was actually an anti-environmentalist book. And in it, she said, uh, evidence of Watson's insanity can be found in the fact that when he was 12, he shot a boy in the ass with a BB gun who was about to kill a bird. She said, any, man, any boy who would shoot another boy to protect a bird has to be insane. And I uh, responded by saying, look, Dixie, um, in my town or where I lived, every boy shot every other boy with a BB gun. I just happen to have a practical reason to shoot the kid I did. <laughs> oh my God. That's like I shot my cousin with a bow and arrow when I was a kid, and there wasn't, uh, there wasn't any animal cruelty involved in that. That's just something that happens when you're growing up and you're an idiot 10-year-old. We did that too. I got a misplaced bone in a finger because I had an arrow go through it. <laughs> I feel really out of it. I didn't shoot anyone when I was a kid, so I feel really bad. <laughs> uh, but Paul, what was the attitude to animal welfare, animal rights in your community when you were growing up then? Were you a bit of a lone, lone wolf to excuse the, the pun? Or, well, it was, you know, you know everybody was a hunter or, or yeah. a fisherman. My own father was. My mother was uh, always taught us to be kind to animals, so. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was, everybody was, you know, there's no sympathy for animals whatsoever. So I was considered a little, my, fortunately I was bigger than the other kids. So they didn't really hmm. give me a hard time. 
<laughs> and they all knew the kid that you shot in the arse, so. <laughs> exactly. And also what I think is absolutely fantastic is you had the opportunity to go to the club that you mentioned where you're learning pro-animal, pro-nature values. That's something that you don't see often now, unfortunately. Yeah. I don't know if in Canada or in America now, but in the UK, you certainly don't see it. It's something that I think would be really beneficial now. I always felt that the UK was a, a little ahead of uh, North America, certainly when it came to animal welfare. My experiences in the UK in the 70s and 80s uh, showed that. I mean, that's where the hunt saboteurs originated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and interesting enough, uh, Sea Shepherd uh, got its real start because of two very conservative groups that uh, gave me the money to buy the ship and the money to do the first campaign. And uh, the first was the uh, New York City-based Fund for Animals under Cleveland Amory that he provided me the funds to buy the first Sea Shepherd boat. And the second, the operating funds came from the RSPCA, hmm. uh, thanks to uh, Bill Jordan, who was a veterinarian with the RSPCA. I always think it's funny that when people say we're this radical extremist group, if it wasn't for those two conservative groups, we probably wouldn't be here today. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And that was back in 77, wasn't it? 78 when you founded... 78, 79. Uh, I, I found this hmm. in Hull in, the, in Yorkshire, and that was hmm. the first ship. You traveled the world. You, you became a sailor initially, and then when you returned, you co-formed Greenpeace. Yeah, I was uh, with the Norwegian-Swedish Merchant Marine. I ran out to sea when I was quite young, but uh, when I was just about ready to turn 18 and uh, I attended a demonstration um, on the Washington-British Columbia border against uh, nuclear testing in Amchika Island, and the demonstration was put together by two groups, uh, the Quakers and the uh, Sierra Club. They were opposed to nuclear testing, and the Quakers came from a peace point of view and the uh, Sierra Club from the environmentalist point of view. My motivation for getting involved was completely different, and that was that M. Chitka was a wildlife preserve, and you couldn't go onto the island with a rifle, but you could blow a five-megaton bomb up under it and killed a lot of sea otters and sea lions. Anyway, I joined that group, and uh, we all got together and formed a group called the Don't Make a Wave Committee because uh, people's uh, memories were still fresh about the um, tsunami from the 1964 Anchorage earthquake. So at the Don't Make a Wave Committee, uh, we were coming up with different ideas of what to do. And the Quakers had sent a boat down to Bikini Atoll to protest nuclear testing in 1956. So we said, oh, well, let's do that. Let's get a boat. And at one of the early meetings, somebody left the uh, meeting and flashed a peace sign and said, peace. And Bill Darnell, who was one of the members of the Don't Make a Wave Committee, said, make it a green piece. And uh, Bob Hunter said, hey, that's the name for the ship. Let's well, call the boat the green piece. And so it was the green piece and the green piece too. And uh, I sailed on the green piece too. And um, in 1972, we officially changed the name from the Don't Make a Wave Committee to the Greenpeace Foundation. And were the two primary campaigns... You were looking at the whaling, Soviet whaling at the time in particular, as well as the Canadian seal industry. Is that correct? Well, yeah, the, our first uh, whale campaign, actually, there was the first schism within Greenpeace happened when we decided, Bob Hunter, uh, Paul Spong, and I decided to protect the whales. And of course, the Quakers didn't like that at all. So they actually all dropped out of Greenpeace because of that which is, sort of makes sense because the Yankee whaling fleet was all run by the Quakers anyway. Mm. Uh, but they weren't too happy about it. So uh, we set out to uh, find the Soviet whaling fleet, which we did in June of 1975, and we confronted them. It was the first time any whaling fleet had ever been confronted. And uh, we went on. I, I organized and led the campaigns to protect seals off of Labrador and Newfoundland in 76 and 77. But I left Greenpeace in 77 and to set up Sea Shepherd. I love that, Paul, you said that so almost humbly that you were able to find the Soviet whalers. 
Am I correct? In fact, literally you had no idea where they were and you had to sort of, it was almost like a needle in a haystack of trying to find them. We left in April of 75 to look for them, starting at Garland Islands and moving our way down. And in the middle of June of 75, we ran into them off of um, Mendocino, Cape Mendocino, about 65 miles out at sea. We knew they were out there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and this was before the 200-mile limit, so they were operating within the 200 miles of the U.S. coast uh, at the time. So it, it was amazing. In fact, in fact, Soviet and Polish and uh, Chinese dragger fleets were operating 13 miles off the coast of the United States at that time. Uh, so things have changed quite, uh, quite radically since then. But uh, it's interesting how we found them. I mean, our crew were basically uh, divided into the, the mystics and the mechanics. <laughs> and the mystics were throwing the I Ching and the mechanics were trying to uh, using navigation and <laughs> ended up uh, between the two of them, we, uh, the two groups, we managed to find the Soviet whaling fleet. At that time, what was the level of whaling that existed? Oh, well, I, I would say that since then, about 95% of whaling has been shut down. Uh, at mm. that time, not only the Soviets and the Japanese, but also the Chileans, the South Africans, the Spanish, oh, the Peruvians, the Brazilians, the Australians were all whaling. Uh, about mm. oh, about 35,000 whales a year were being killed. Wow. Wow. First, we shut down the Australians in 77. Then uh, one by one, the other nations dropped out. We sank half of the Spanish whaling fleet in 1980 and shut down the pirate whaling operations in 1980. And uh, Iceland is pretty much shut down. They haven't killed any whales for the last two years. We've driven the Japanese whaling fleet out of the Southern Ocean, and they won't be going back. I think that within five to 10 years, all whaling will be shut down worldwide. There's just mm. no money in it. It only exists because of massive subsidies. I wanted to ask about that, just for the purposes of the people listening. Whaling still exists under the label of scientific research. And for people that don't understand what that means, because it's obviously a smokescreen just for the whaling, but when they define scientific research, what research are they supposedly doing? Well, actually, I should, uh, it isn't accepted anymore. Uh, Japan was taken to court by the International Court of Justice in uh, 2014, and there was ruling that this scientific uh, research is bogus, and everybody knows it was bogus, mm. and they were told that uh, it was invalid. But they didn't whale for the next year, but then they just ignored the ICJ and went again in and 2015-16. But there is no legal scientific research. Norway and Iceland just completely ignored the ruling. Mm. And they didn't even make any pretense. They just continued on with commercial whaling. It was only the Japanese that came up with the so-called scientific research thing, which everybody mm. knew was, well, was just a lie. <laughs> but uh, all whaling today is restricted to the territorial waters of Japan and Norway and Denmark. That's the only places mm. whaling are taking place. Yeah, Iceland, but Iceland hasn't taken any whales for two years. So that's a major victory. Uh, last year was the first time in history of whaling that no whales were killed in international waters. That's incredible. Amazing. And in Japan, Paul, I'm really interested in the role that nationalism plays within whaling. And I just wanted to get your opinion on this. Is it true that the government have almost used it as a almost a vehicle for stoking nationalist rhetoric as a sort of us against them, we have to protect our traditional ways? Is, is that correct or am I wrong there, Paul? Well, it's both. Uh, really, the problem is Premier of Japan, Abe, uh, comes from a whaling district. So, you know, he has a vested interest in supporting the whaling industry. The other problems are is that the Japanese whaling industry is owned by the government, but the people who sit on the board of directors are all former politicians. So if whaling is shut down, they lose their six-figure salaries. 
The other factor is the unions where the sailors come from is a Yakuza-controlled union, so they put a lot of pressure on the government also. Whaling continues to exist in Japan at a cost of about $50 million a year in subsidies. It was more, but it's less now. And they came to a point uh, two years ago where they reached a dilemma. To continue in the Southern Ocean, they'd have to uh, build a new uh, factory ship. That'd be about $500 million. And there was a lot of opposition politically against that. And so they just didn't get the go-ahead to do it. So no factory ship, no whaling. Now, people criticize us, say, well, how come you're not going after the whalers in Japan now? And the reason for that is that strategically, you have to know when to back off. You have to know when to not put these people in a corner. And uh, the Japanese government and the Japanese whalers would love nothing better than for us to come after them right now, because that would stoke up this nationalistic fervor that they've been using to defend their industry. So we're just going to let the whole industry die and wither away without making a big fuss about it. We've achieved what we wanted to achieve. Our objective was to drive them out of the Southern Ocean Whale Sanctuary. That's been achieved. I think that circumstances, economic and political realities will see to the demise of the the Japanese whaling industry within a few years. Fingers crossed. Definitely fingers crossed. Yeah, I think it's quite certain because it just doesn't make any economic or political sense uh, for it to continue. And Japan have got such an aging population. They've got real economic issues, haven't they? Which is putting a strain on their finances. So hopefully, like you say, it'll end and we can move on from that sort of archaic practice. Yeah, and the market for whale meat is for that older generation. It's about less than 1% of the population eats whale meat. Going back to the um, start of Sea Shepherd, and it's something that I know that you have spoken about before, this transition that you went through from the indirect activism to the direct activism, that was clearly an evolution in the way that you approach things. And I'm wondering since then how things have evolved in the way that you approached. Uh, And you kind of indicated that in the way that you're talking about dealing with Japan now. But this evolution of approaches that you've had in, in your direct activism, Well, with Greenpeace, I realized that, you know, protesting doesn't work. I'm not a protester. I set up Sea Shepherd to be an interventionist group to directly intervene. Uh, You know, hanging banners and taking pictures just doesn't work. As I said, um, Greenpeace was in my face about it one time on Australian television. I said, look, you don't walk down the street and see a woman being raped and do nothing but hang a banner. You don't walk down the street and see a kitten being stomped to death on the sidewalk and just stop there and take the picture of the atrocity. You have to stop it. And they say, well, you know, the um, Quaker philosophy is bearing witness. I said, you know what that means? Cowardice. That's what it means. And uh, that's where we, Greenpeace and I, parted ways on that particular mm. thing. I'm not a Quaker. And uh, <laughs> so how the, it evolved is, uh, you know, you constantly have to evolve with things. I mean, the things that we did in the 70s and 80s, we could never get away with today because of the way society has evolved. It's much more repressive against activism than that. So you constantly have to come up with new strategies. A strategy that we came up with about starting, uh, well, 1999 was to uh, partner with the Ecuadorian government to protect the Galapagos Marine Reserve. So that's a 20-year partnership. And now that's evolved into now formal partnerships with numerous African countries and Latin American countries. And what that means is that we provide the resources, the crew and the volunteers, uh, the ships, the fuel, and they provide the authority. So now we're able to clear up poaching operations in African waters, Latin American waters, by going right in there and arresting them, stopping them, seizing them, confiscating them. Uh, We're now in partnership with Mexico, Peru, Colombia, Ecuador, 
let me see, the Gambia, uh, Namibia, Santome, Cape Verde, uh, Tanzania, Ghana, and Liberia, and a couple other countries there that we're getting more, more and more requests to get involved. It, nobody's ever really done that before, which is uh, partner a non-government organization with the government with the naval and policing authorities to get these jobs done. And uh, it's been very successful. Last year, uh, Liberia gave us their highest military order for the work that we were doing in, in their waters. Well, you know, our philosophy, I developed this philosophy back in the, when I started a sea shepherd called aggressive nonviolence. And um, I'm proud of our record. We've never killed anybody. We've never injured anybody. And we've never committed a felony. People can call us all the names they want, but those are the facts. And we remain true today. We don't carry firearms, but we do now carry authorities that are, do have firearms, you know, Navy and policing personnel. But that's not us. We're just the vehicle to deliver them. And still, despite that, nobody's been killed or injured either. It's an incredible model. And it's something that I wish it was replicated on other issues, this level of partnership between governments and nonprofits and activism, because the resources and the intention and the desire to help is there. And I know of so many organizations and so many projects and so many campaigns that would benefit so much from that kind of partnership with an authority, but the authority just isn't prepared to step up and do that. How did that process work? Was that simply just because there was a recognition in Ecuador that there was a mutual benefit or was there some work on your side to persuade that there was a mutual benefit? We were lucky in Ecuador because the director of the Galapagos National Park at the time was Eliezer Cruz, and I approached him directly, and he was rather a progressive director, and he was the one that we made the deal with, and it's stuck ever since, despite the fact that there's been new directors and that, because they saw what we were able to bring to the table there, and that is the resources to actually stop these poachers, and we stopped so many of them. We can measure our success really with the number of whales and dolphins and sharks and fish and everything that we've prevented from being killed. And that to me has always been the ultimate measure of success. But in 2015, we uh, the longest pursuit in maritime history when we caught the toothfish poacher Thunder off the coast of Antarctica and chased it for 110 days all the way up into the Indian Ocean around the Cape of Good Hope, halfway up to equatorial West Africa. And uh, for 110 days, and finally, we ran them out of fuel. They had no place to go. And the captain sank his own ship right in front of us. We rescued the crew, and he was sinking the ship to destroy the evidence. But we boarded the sinking ship. We got the evidence. He ended up going to prison for three years, and the company is fined 17 million euros. But during that chase, we partnered with Interpol. And uh, that is what evolved into all of these requests from all these different countries for us to help to work with them and to assist. It's been a very successful campaign. We're, in fact, getting so many requests, uh, it's hard to keep up with them. We now have 14 ships, and uh, we're the largest non-government Navy in the world. And how big a crew? I mean, assuming you have different ships and different volunteers, but what kind of pool of people do you have that are involved in that? Well, right now we have about 250 volunteers from about 25 different countries. That's incredible. And we're attracting some very uh, you know, skilled people. Last year, the captain of the Ocean Warrior was the former chief of staff and admiral with the Italian Navy who had retired. Wow. That's amazing. I'm really glad you brought up chasing when they chased the thunder because I was going to bring up the documentary. I think sometimes we have a very naive lack of understanding about what is going on in the oceans when it comes to IUU, illegal, unregulated, unreported fishing, which is a bulk of what this work you're doing with the governments is focused on. 
and there is so much corruption and danger involved in this. I mean, that documentary really highlights the risk that the volunteers at Sea Shepherd, the crew, but all these government workers put themselves at because this is a really dangerous game of uh, there's a lot of money involved. I believe with the Thunder, the way the owners of the ship actually hid their ownership of it through various different means, uh, pretending to register the boat, I think, to an abandoned theme park in Nigeria, all these sort of extravagant ways in which they go to try and not get discovered. It's a really dangerous and a highly sophisticated industry right now, isn't it? Yeah, well, after Thunder sank, they actually tried to collect insurance on it through some bogus yeah. company in Panama, but we shut that down. It was ultimately traced to the uh, Vidal Armadores family in Galicia, Spain, and uh, they did get into court, but the Spanish judges, of course, ruled in their favor, saying Spain didn't have any jurisdiction outside of Spanish waters, and that's how they got away with it. But uh, we did get them fined $17 million in uh, Santomi because uh, they had sunk their ship in Santomi waters. And, you know, this is a, an industry that involves uh, slavery, the abuse of the workers who are on board, uh, observers who uh, are thrown overboard, murdered. There's a good movie out now, our documentary called Murder at Sea, which is put together by the same producer who did Chasing the Thunder, which illustrates that it's an extremely violent uh, environment out there. These are smugglers or criminals. On our Operation Milagro in the Sea of Cortez to protect the Bikita, we get shot at, our drones get shot down. Uh, we have Molotov cocktails thrown at us, a lot of death threats. But one thing Sea Shepherd has demonstrated over the years is we don't back down, no matter what the opposition is. And we've never backed down. We don't retreat. And uh, I think that our opposition understands that. And if sometimes we have to go into the courts and battle it out in the courts. And so far, we've won in all these court cases. Brings me on to another point. You've been an influence for an entire generation of activists, the, the archetype and, and synonymous with really powerful voice for activism. How does that sit with you, knowing that there's a generation of activists out there that have come into conservation and environmentalism and their approach has been formed in some way by the work that you and Sea Shepherd have done? How does that resonate with you? I don't really give it a lot of serious thought. Really. But, you know, when people come on board as crew members and as volunteers or work with us, the one thing we try to instill in them is that each and every one of us has the power to change the world. All you have to do is harness your passion to courage and imagination and you can make a difference. And uh, a lot of our volunteers have gone on to form their own groups. Uh, back in 1979, when I was chasing down the pirate whaler, the Sierra, one of my crew members who was 18 years old at the time, Alex Pacheco, he came to me uh, and he said, well, we got to do something about protecting laboratory animals. And I said, Alex, this is a Sea Shepherd Society. We're not going into any laboratories. And he said, well, somebody's got to do something. I said, well, why the hell don't you do something about it? And he said, well, what can I do? I said, well, use your imagination. Come up with something. I don't know. And um, he went back to Maryland, got a job in uh, a lab and documented all the atrocities there, turned it over to the Washington Post and to the television networks and uh, ended up shutting down the lab. And then he went on and founded his own organization, which is PETA, uh, People for the Ethical Treatment for Animals. Incredible. Wow. Something that's also, I suppose we can't not mention it, is Whale Wars. What impact did that make to Sea Shepherd as an organization, Paul? Did it bring its own benefits, but also some negatives? Or how did that really affect you and your activism? Sea Shepherd has always been a very media-oriented group. Uh, I mean, I was fortunate as a student of communications to have a guest lecturer, uh, Marshall McLuhan, who uh, really told us what the nature of media was and the, the rules of media, how to work within media. 
And uh, one of the things I discovered at a very early age is that the most powerful weapon on the planet is a camera. And so that's why we document everything that we do. But in 2006, I went to all the different networks. I said, look, the biggest show on Discovery right now is a bunch of guys going into very remote and cold areas to catch crabs. And uh, I can uh, give you men and women going to a colder, more remote, more hostile place to save whales. It's got to be more compelling than catching crabs every week. <laughs> and um, Animal Planet went for it. Animal Planet, of course, is owned by Discovery, but uh, they went for it. And that reached millions of people. You know, it uh, became their number one show It was uh, in ratings. And uh, it went international. And yes, it gave us a terrific boost in support overall. And it embarrassed the hell out of the Japanese government. So it was a very uh, positive thing. Uh, it's also the first reality show that I know of where there was no script. They couldn't tell us what to do and we didn't tell them what to edit. So they just had to roll the cameras. And uh, for the most part, we just ignored that they were there. And of course, they made their usual dramas and everything here and there with their editing and everything. But that's just the price you got to pay for it. The thing is, they were very much part of our efforts to drive the Japanese out of the Southern Ocean Whale Sanctuary. We did one segment in the Faroe Islands called uh, Whale Wars Viking Shores or something. They made a big deal about it. But uh, it actually worked out quite well because the Faroese, they decided, we're, not, we're just not going to kill any whales. That'll show them. So no whales were killed that entire year. <laughs> I think Animal Planet was a little disappointed because they wanted the action, but we gave them archival stuff and everything. And I said, well, it doesn't matter. Our objective was to not kill whales. So uh, this is a 100% success story. And I love the scene, Paul, where um, a leader of the whaling in the Faroese has an opportunity to come and speak to you yeah. and gets to the hotel and doesn't take literally at the last minute, backs out of it. It's really interesting that he was open to a dialogue, but when he had the opportunity, he chose not to speak to you. I thought that was really, really fascinating. I've challenged them to debates uh, continuously. They've always uh, turned, they always said, come and debate us. And then when I show up, they back out. I mean, I don't know what they're gonna, how they're going to defend what they're doing. We even sent Pamela Anderson there, and they wouldn't debate her either. So, <laughs> <laughs> the damn fools! The fools! The fools! <laughs> when people think of Sea Shepherd and think of you, obviously whaling is the first thing that comes to mind. But that's not at all the only thing that you guys do, and we've already kind of touched on that with the illegal fishing. But obviously, there's the shark finning, there's the ghost gear stuff, and there's the campaigning that you do on the absolute devastation that's being put on the oceans right now. One of the things that shocked me a little while ago when I was doing some research, I was looking at fish stocks and the way that oceans are being overharvested at the moment. And I was trying to come up with a figure of the number of fish that are pulled out of the ocean. When you talk about land animals, they talk about 70, 80 billion animals a year that are killed for food, farmed for food. And I was trying to look at a similar figure for the oceans. And almost everything was by weight. There wasn't the number of animals. It was the weight. And the closest figure that I found was between one and three trillion fish. And to me, that was such a shocking revelation that how little of a shit do you have to give about an animal that two trillion is an acceptable margin of error for the number of animals that you're taking and pulling out of the ocean. And it's shocking to me that it isn't a bigger issue. And you do get more recognition for more iconic species like whales and dolphins and shark finning. But just general fishing is just devastating for the environment and for the ecosystem. And that's something that you guys are obviously involved in as well. 
we're involved with everything from phytoplankton to the gray whale. Uh, even, you know, we have projects protecting sea cucumbers and crabs and uh, shellfish and, uh, and that. But of course, they're not sexy issues for the public. So, yeah. you know, you have to use things like whales and dolphins and sharks and seals. The money that you raise to protect those iconic creatures, you can direct the funds towards saving the less you know, sexy creatures as I, as I was mm. really, when you get right down to it, the most important creatures in the sea and on the planet are the smallest, the bacteria, the plankton, uh, the, you know, these are the species that run the planet that keep us alive and uh, without, we would not survive. And uh, the most part though, people, it's a uh, reality is out of sight and out of mind. We live in this anthropocentric reality that we've invented where everything revolves around the human species and we're all important. And, uh, we need to really return to a biocentric point of view where we understand that we're part of everything and not dominant over everything. You know, I've long said that humans have sort of become these overly conceited naked apes who have become divine legends in our own minds. But uh, for instance, without worms, we couldn't survive. Without bees, we couldn't survive. Without plankton, you know, 70% of the air we breathe comes from phytoplankton in the ocean. The phytoplankton disappeared tomorrow we'd all die. And phytoplankton populations have been diminished by about 40% since 1950. So it's a serious situation. 90% of the fish have been removed from the oceans. Um, and most of the world fisheries are on the verge of collapse. According to Dr. Daniel Pauly and Dr. Boris Worm, the two foremost fishery scientists in the world today, there won't be any fishing industry by 2048 because there won't be any fish. People just sort of, they're in denial, like they're in denial about everything. Uh, you know, you just can do this for so long. We can't live on this planet and ignore the three basic laws of ecology, diversity, interdependence, and finite resources. No species in the history of the planet has ever survived by living outside of those laws, and uh, we're not going to be any different. We tend to think that we're so powerful, but we haven't been around very long, and at this rate, we're not going to be around that much longer. Do you see the role of cell-cultured meat and plant-based options and things? Um, we're now seeing a, a huge surge of that. And at the moment, it's very much red meat-based and chicken-based, but there's a real push to find fish alternatives. And is there a hope from you that that's going to have it's going to have to have a seriously big effect, but that obviously is one of the ways that it's going to reduce the level of consumption and the level of harvesting from the oceans. Yeah. The COP21 conference in Paris in 2015, uh, I addressed the ocean conference there and I said, look, this situation is so serious. We need at least, at least a 50 year moratorium on commercial heavy gear fishing. It's got to be shut down right now. All of it. If the ocean is going to survive. There are 40 million fishing boats out of there, which 4 million of them, which are completely illegal, operating illegally. We just can't keep up with that. It's a finite resource, and that violates the laws of finite resources, which means that there's a limit to carrying capacity. And I guess the best way to describe it, and what I try to describe all the time, is that if you look on the Earth as a spaceship, then we're on this incredible trip around the Milky Way galaxy and every spaceship has a life support system and it provides the air we breathe and the regulates climate and temperature and provides the food we eat. And that spaceship is run by a crew, not by human beings. We're passengers. We're having a wonderful time amusing ourselves. But what we are doing is killing off the crew. And there's only so many crew members you can kill before the machinery begins to fall apart. And that's what's happening right now. We're running out of the crew that runs all this. And, you know, they're more important than we are. You know, I, I remember a few years ago, the Fox Network took me on because I said, they called me up and they said, did you actually say that bees and trees, worms and fish were more important than people? I said, yeah, I said that. How can you say something so outrageous? I said, well, uh, 
because they are. Uh, they can live here without us, but we can't live here without them. So ecologically speaking, they're far more important than we are. But they just couldn't see that. I mean, because that's the anthropocentric point of view. He said, it's all here for us. Every single religion on this planet puts human beings at the center. Yeah, the wording itself is the dominion over species. And that kind of suggests that we get to do whatever we want with it. And that's not true at all. Yeah. I think we're linked, we've got a link to commodification there as well of animals, of just seeing them as commodities. And I think bringing it back to IUU fishing again, Paul, because you, you mentioned there the number of illegal vessels out there. I mean, I generally don't think people can understand the extent of this, that you have fishing boats from Indonesia, China, Vietnam, countries like that, coming all the way off to the coast of Gambia, Tanzania, and just raiding the waters using quite archaic, very wasteful techniques. And then if they are doing it illegally, they'll either just change their flag sometimes to countries like the North Korean flag, or they'll just change the name of their boat. The scale of it is just overwhelming, isn't it, when you think about it? Well, it is. There's 8 billion people on the planet, and they're all trying to make a buck. <laughs> yeah. I was in Vietnam last year, and I was scuba diving. And we went to what was supposed to be this beautiful reserve in Vietnam off the coast of Da Nang. And we were told that in Vietnam, this was one of the best places to go diving and see the life underwater. And there, was, there wasn't much there, to be honest. There was a few small fish. And when I came out of the water, my wife and I were asking the dive guys, where's the, um, is that it? You know, we were expecting, and it wasn't that we were disappointed that we didn't see stuff. It was, we were shocked at how little there was. There was nothing really much bigger than a sardine down there. And we asked, and the guy said, they've eaten everything else. Like there's nothing left in these oceans. The country's got a hundred million people and they have literally taken everything out of the ocean that's any bigger than a sardine and there's nothing else left. And this is just off the coast of Vietnam. And so, as you said, you know, this is a global issue now. Yeah, the Anamani people of the Amazonia, they have a name for us, uh, the civilized people. They call us the termite people because we gobble everything up. Yeah. I was just thinking, Paul, I mean, you've got a sun tiger now, haven't you? Yeah. And um, what do you see needing to change? Or are you very hopeful for the future? Or are you pessimistic after your career so far working in the industry? Well, I've never been uh, optimistic or pessimistic. Uh, I learned a lesson many years ago at uh, Wounded Knee. I was a medic for the American Indian Movement. And we were surrounded by 3,000 federal troops who were shooting at us. And uh, I went to Russell Means, the leader of the American Indian Movement. And I said, look, uh, we don't have any hope of winning here. We're the odds are against us. And uh, he said, well, we're not concerned about winning or losing, and we're not concerned about the odds against us. We're here because this is the right place to be, the right thing to do, and the right time to do it. Don't worry about the future. You focus on the present. The present will define the future. So if you change things in the present, you have an opportunity to change things in the future. So I actually concentrate on the present, and I don't really dwell on the future too much. But I also learned that um, in the history of mass extinction events on this planet, and there's been five prior to the one that we're in now, which is uh, the Anthropocene. Look at the Permian extinction uh, 250 million years ago. 97% of everything was wiped out. Uh, all of those extinctions have one thing in common, uh, 18 to 20 million years for a full recovery. So 18 to 20 million years from now, it'll be a full recovery. <laughs> we might not. We certainly won't be here. But it's a, we're not going to kill this planet but we hmm. certainly going to commit global suicide ourselves and take a lot of species with us. But uh, the planet will survive and uh, hopefully recover. And until some other species evolves to make the same damn mistakes that we do. 
In fact, I'm actually convinced that if it wasn't for that meteor 65 million years ago, we wouldn't be here. But there would probably be some sort of reptilian, uh, dinosaurian, uh, bipedal, intelligent being. They'll be doing the same damn thing that we're doing now. <laughs> <laughs> you touched on something there just before, Paul, and I wanted to just expand upon. If you could go back to your younger self, do you have any regrets within your activism, the way things uh, went in the past? Or if you had any advice for your younger self based on what you've experienced now and how you've seen things evolve, what would that be? Well, in hindsight, I probably would have been much more aggressive in situations than I was. But, uh, <laughs> at the time, of course, it seemed like caution was probably the best thing to do. But uh, there's many things I knew that I now realize that I could have gotten away with if I, <laughs> if I had it simply gone for it. But other than that, I can't think of anything. I have no regrets about the way it evolved. What I always wanted was for Sea Shepherd to become a movement, which it's now become. It's not an organization. And, you know, you can shut down an individual, you can shut down an organization, but you can't stop a movement. Now Sea Shepherd's in 42 different countries, and we have a diverse leadership, independent leaderships, and uh, we're all working together. And uh, that, to me, is uh, the most successful thing that we've done is create that movement. And uh, it also means that I'm, just, I'm more of a figurehead now than anything, really. But uh, that's probably the strongest position to be in. That was amazing, wasn't it, Matt? Speaking to Paul was incredible. I just can't believe we got to speak to Paul Watson. It's insane. Me neither. You know, years ago, I was used to sit watching Whale Wars, and now speaking to Paul Watson, it's... So weird. Have to pinch yourself sometimes when we do this, some of the people that we speak to. And I know we work in animal welfare and, and maybe some people think that we all hang out together. But there are some people that you just go, wow, I got to speak to Paul Watson. But you know what I loved, what I loved most about chatting with him is when he was talking about his story, when he said he spent summers swimming with a family of beavers, <laughs> he and I had very different childhoods. <laughs> Like the idea of swimming with a family of beavers. Although then he did say that he shot a kid in the ass with a BB gun. And that was, you haven't had the experience of accidentally shooting a friend with something. No. I, as I mentioned there, have. Yeah. It was my cousin. I forget how old he were. And it wasn't a proper bow and arrow. It was one of those bows and arrows that had like the little sucker on the end of yeah, it. Yeah, I like, sticks to a bit of glass. And I think I shot him in the eye with it. <laughs> But like to be fair, I wasn't expecting you to say his eye. <laughs> it was it was his. I mean, it wasn't like he still has the eye, and he has like moderate use of it. <laughs> it obviously affected his career as yeah. a pilot. Um, but he, <laughs> I got such a bollocking from his mum for that. But hey, check out your aim though. As a kid, nailing an eye. That's pretty impressive, you know. It was pretty close range, to be honest. There a part of you that was like. Quite proud of myself for that. <laughs> Retrospectively, yes. At the time, I was mortified, yeah. like because he dropped like a stone, and I got into a huge amount of trouble. Yeah. But yeah, you think about things in the past, and yeah. it was no real harm done. No, no. And who needs two eyes? Exactly. Who needs two eyes? And I love the fact that Paul said when we asked him, "Does he have any regrets?" and he said, "I wasn't aggressive enough." Just what a savage! <laughs> I just love it. It's like. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, what a fantastic start to season two, eh? And season two has only just started and we're already just a day away from another episode. Exactly. So tomorrow we have got a special International Cat Day episode with none other than globe-trotting, cat-trapping extraordinaire Ian McFarlane. If you've not heard of Ian, 
your infantry, Ian, is so passionate about cats. I actually don't think you could probably find somebody more passionate than Ian about cats. Oh, that sounds like a challenge. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Here's an International Cat Day challenge. Yeah. August the 8th, International Cat Day in cooperation with International Cat Care. Yep. Here's a challenge for our listeners. When you listen to Ian McFarlane's podcast about cats and cat welfare and cat behavior, if you think you're more passionate about cats than Ian, let us know and tell us why. Yeah, do it. So look out for that podcast tomorrow. Otherwise, stay safe. Wash your bloody hands still. Look out for the second wave. It's coming. Duck. <laughs> Cover. Avoid. Avoid. Two meters. Don't trust anyone. Especially us. Especially us. And we'll see you on the next podcast. Yeah.